This is a new podcast series called Clarity Generates Confidence. Now, welcome to episode five of Clarity Generates Confidence. Today we're going to talk about how to, a company that's been successful, then go into a failing mode and coming back to being successful again. And Kim Lemon, I'm happy to have her with me again today. And so Kim's got a couple of questions to start us off. So Kim, what would be, what do you want to say about that? My first statement that from success to failure and then back to success again, what's your thought? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I'm happy to be back here today. It's going to be on episode five, halfway through the podcast. That's wonderful. Uh, so I guess my main question here was, um, I haven't been around that long, but I did hear that GCP started off you know, at a slower start, but you got up to a $6 million profit and slowly came back down a bit. I was wondering what happened along the way. How do, what was this? Yeah, actually, it was probably even a little bit earlier than that as I, I got it started and um, the first year went well and then I what the business went by five times the second year and then incremental growth for the third and fourth year. Uh, and I felt I was on easy street. You know, this is coming in, things are going along, and I took my eye off it. And uh, the business after that dropped about 50% or so. Uh, we went from, and again, having been located here in Canada, uh, we sold everything in U.S. dollars, so we had a U.S. dollar exchange rate, which Canadian exchange rate, which was in our favor. So, and that switched the other way. The Canadian dollar became close to par to the U.S. as opposed to having maybe, you know, 30 or 40% premium. So that and the reduction of the, of the volume, two of my customers went around us and went directly to our suppliers in China. I was pretty pissed. Um, but I was told very clearly at that point in time is that the customers didn't feel like I was servicing them. And so they said, well, we don't want to lose the business, the suppliers in China, that is. And so they took them on. And, and that really bothered me. That really, that really shook me. Uh, but when I went back and, and thought about it, I sort of said, yeah, I did. I, did. I, took, I took my eye off, the, off it. And I realized that, the, so I came up with an expression at that point, is keep your eye on the prize and your finger on the pulse. And so what that meant to me was, is that, you know, it's almost like a, the pulse is like a health term, but you know you always want to feel the pulse of a person. Are they alive? Are they breathing? What what's going on? And the same thing for a business. What are the what's the pulse? What are the the key things for a business that you need to watch? And and then the eye on the prize. Well, I'm a futurist, as I said before, so I always think about the future, and I have to be brought back to the present. So clearly, I was in a situation back then, in. 2004, 2005, that I had taken my finger off the pulse. I was looking at the prize out there, but you can't do both. Do one. You have to do both of them. You have to make sure that both of them are being looked after. And so that was really a way of uh, giving me a message. And so to answer your question, uh, when I realized that happened, I had a choice. And my choice was, do I give up? and go away. Uh, I was already doing some coaching and I knew I could do that. I like to do that. But I didn't like the option. Uh, I didn't like the option of failure. And so I just said that for me now that failure is not the option. So what do I have to do? But it was clear to me that I wasn't the guy that was going to pull us out of the hole on my own. And so I recognized that as I, as I had done what my unique ability was and it was not running the business day to day because clearly as it got going I didn't pay attention to it so I needed to bring a team around me and that's where the people who, who you now know in the office have been around me Melanie was was first on to handle all the customer services and 
all the support that we needed for our customers, handled the orders, which was absolutely crucial. I found that out after it took me two days to do one order. Oh, yeah? I said, this is not going to work if it's taking me two days to do an order when we do you know, more than one a day at the moment. So uh, this isn't going to work. So then they, uh, I, after that, uh, I knew I needed help in, in China, and so George came on to handle the China operations because it can't be everywhere. And then right after that, Nathan came on, and Nathan was the guy who would look after the administration, handle those pieces. Um, all of it was I had to do that without really having much money. So my income dropped significantly yeah. over that time, but it was an investment. It was an investment in those three people. Fifteen years later, those three people are still there, and you know our core to the company. Uh, Craig came on a couple of years after that to look at the, help in the marketing and the sales side as well. But I really... So what happened was is that I realized I could build it to a certain point, and then I also recognized that I wasn't going to be able to take it further. And, and I think that's what all of us as entrepreneurs have to recognize. Where, where do we stop being useful? Where do we start being a bottleneck? Where do, we, where do we stop having the same interest and attention to it? And that was pretty graphic for me at that point in time. And so I pulled pulled back and got the right people on board and then reset the vision. So in 2005, we reset the vision. We said we want to grow the business from that point, which is under $2 million. We wanted to grow it to just one and a half, $14 million or so in 10 years. <clears throat> so we could grow right through. And I did that with everybody. We call it a 10 times, in strategic coach terms, a 10 times mind expander exercise. We did that in the fall of 2005. And that was really key because yeah. now everyone had the energy and the vision for how we were going to go next. So <clears throat> that's what took us through to six million. And six million was also a significant number. I think we've talked about this before, that that was the number I wrote down on the, on the napkin in the basement of the Minzu Hotel in central Beijing back in the year 2000. That said, I thought the business could grow to that. Well, we achieved that, and uh, and that was really an awesome feeling to do that. But we were still on our track to go right through to about fourteen and fifteen million dollars. Uh, but it was really because the, the two key things were: one, I recognized that that I wasn't the person that was going to do everything and carry it off, and secondly, so that means I need a team. And the second part was you need to have a vision of what the business could look like, so everybody could rally around that. So those are the, those were the two main things that uh, I'd say allowed us to pull out of the hole and come back up. Not all smooth sailing, but certainly uh, those were the things. When I look back on the trend line, that those those had to happen before the business could grow again. What was your first initial reaction when you realized that we were losing profit? Was it shock, dismay? Oh, definitely. I mean, I was I was severely pissed off. Oh yeah. Um, I remember. Um, being in a hotel room in Toronto and uh, it was at night I didn't done some coaching during the day and I called the factory in because China they're 12 hours out of sync so I called them and and that's when I was told that you know they're going to deal with these guys because I wasn't looking after them well um, that really bothered me you know that because that was that up until then it hadn't been a reflection of me now it was about me that now it was me that was the problem and I, I, I think we're all probably all easier if we can blame somebody else for what goes on. Well, in this case, I couldn't blame anybody else. You know, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, well, I'm the one that has to change. But I also say I didn't really know how. So uh, the shock, um, fear, can certainly fear at that point in time. 
Uh, that would have been 2004 or 2005. I'm already in my 50s. Uh, Craig, my son's, you know, going to university. I mean, the costs are high. So just the just the 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 other pressure, the added pressure that was on at that point in time, as well as having to look at myself and saying, how can I look, call myself not successful? I'm standing up in front of these people at as a coach and talk, trying to make them successful, and I don't feel successful. It's a really that's really really tough to do. So, but that's why I said I can't I can't leave it like this. One, I'm too young or whatever. But also, I just can't let it go. But now you have to dig back and say, what do you need to do? So there's a sense of frustration, um, a loss, and and in some respects, a little bit of an emptiness because you haven't really got to got your act back together again. So it, it certainly was a pretty challenging time for me. I bet. takes a really brave person to pull through something like that. I think a lot of people would kind of take a step back and seek outside help. or Yeah, maybe, maybe there's some things I should have done back then, but <laughs> I, I, I didn't. Uh, you know, yes, there's, I also knew, I think Kim, I knew myself well enough at the time to say, to go get a job, which my wife would have been happy if I did right. that at the time, wasn't really an option either. It wasn't going to work for me. So if that wasn't going to work, like getting a job, then what is going to work? So that was probably the helpful point. You're I'm committed. Re- I'm committed. I had to be I had to be committed. And I couldn't have one foot, you know, in one camp and one foot in another. I had to be I had to jump in with both feet. And I believed when we set the business up it was the right thing to do. I still believed it was the right thing to do for everybody involved, but I didn't know I certainly hadn't done it right. I certainly hadn't done it in a way that was going to be continuously successful. So that's that's what the step change was for me. Do you feel there was uh, also, too, with your family, you didn't really want to disappoint them in a way? You want to show that you were able to pull through something this big? Uh, absolutely. I, You know, I, in some respects, I'm a very competitive person, not so much in sports and in other areas. But um, I just, I'm always compete with myself. And maybe that's what drives me. But I was always around other successful people. And I, you're absolutely right. I didn't like that feeling. <laughs> I, I didn't want to feel that way. It was an impact on my own confidence. And for an entrepreneur, you have to have your confidence or you really don't have much at all. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you could take um, one step back to yourself in that situation, that time where the profit was failing and slowing down and give, your, give yourself one key advice, what do you think it would be? The, uh, you know, that's a, that's a really good question and also a really tough question to answer because we, we get blinded by our own success, I think, and we get blinded by our own sense of importance, our own sense of worth or wealth or whatever it might be. And so if we're not in touch with what's happening, then we need a shock to the system to be able to, to break us out of that. And so... If I could have gone back and done it again, if I could have recognized that I, I didn't, I should have really been more conscious of investing in the business all the way along, <clears throat> being more, more certain of my own capabilities. I still remember, um, Craig, I think, had just gone to university. We were down on his break, and uh, we were skiing in, in Vermont, I think. He went to school in southern Quebec. 
And I was, I was getting, oh, I was all excited what was going on. I was going to write this book called So You Want to Be an Entrepreneur. Well, we finally get the podcast going, you know, 15 years later. But, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, you know, so you have to wait. And my wife looks at me at breakfast morning. She says, why don't you just concentrate on your business? <laughs> yeah. You know, instead of doing that. And that was a very wise thing to say. And it was just at that point that I was beginning to recognize what was happening. But I, I'd say that not getting ahead of yourself, if that's understood, is that really staying grounded in the moment, understanding what's happening, staying close to your customers, which I didn't do at that point in time. And that's one of the biggest things I changed. I said, we have to stay really close to our customers and we have to stay really close to our suppliers and not just accept that because we're here, people are going to do business with you. And so that's the advice. I, that's what thing I, something I've followed since then. But if I could have gone back and said, could I do it over again? I would have said, let's, you know, stop what's happening. What, what have we lost? What have we gained? Are we still in touch? Do we know what's happening? <clears throat> but I was doing it myself. And when you do it by yourself, I think you you just lose that sight and, and lose the vision. So uh, I don't know if I would have been able to do it differently mm-hmm. than I did. But my advice to others was if you're feeling like you're not paying attention, if you're feeling like that it's getting away from you, it probably is. And to stop and take stock. And if you can talk to somebody, you know, getting advice, uh, particularly if you have a business mentor, someone who understands what's going, you understands you personally, I think that would be a wise thing to do. That'd be a good step to take before it gets to this point that I got to back in the in the early 2000s. Yeah, because it's hard to get to 20 years. There's a lot of businesses, big or small, that open up, and there is a lot of pressure there. And a lot of times, people will just back out, take their money, and kind of go. Yeah, and you know that's it. That that to me is what I think that time period that, and I'm glad you brought it up for this podcast. I think that time period really defined how we were, how I was going to be, and how we were going to operate as a company. Because we've gone through an awful lot of uh, external situations that really would have put you under. I can think back, you know, say, how do we go from the six million towards thirty million? Well, in two thousand and eight, only a few years later, when the Olympics, Summer Olympics, were taking place in Beijing, uh, they took half the trucks off the road, and then they shut the factories down for more than a month. And oh, our no. factories were right in those zones, and sort of like right in the middle of the summertime, you kind of go. Holy oh. crap, what do you do with that? We had absolutely no control over it all. Yeah, when you have no control, you're right. What are you going to do? No. <laughs> so, but we got through that. And then again, more recently, when the duties got announced really quickly between China and the U.S. Uh, for our products, again, circumstances outside our control. Uh, we're dealing with another one now, uh, the coronavirus. And again, it's totally outside our control. So There's what you can do. No. And... But it was great, you know, Craig, who you work with, uh, said to me, you know, uh, Gary, recognize this isn't anything we've done. And the good part about it was I can go back and think back to that time in 2004 or 2005 and say, all right, are we in touch with our suppliers? Yes, we are all constantly in touch with our suppliers. Are we in touch with our customers? We're constantly in touch. We're we're giving them updates all the time of what's going on from our perspective and how we look after the people didn't do that in 2004 and five. Just, I was probably arrogant, you know, and, oh. you know, ignorant and arrogant at the same time. It's not a good combination to have. Uh, but now once you, I mean, ignorant in the sense that I didn't know, um, not from a personal perspective, but once you, once you are aware of that, then I think it's also incumbent upon you to use that information in a way that's valuable. So I'd say, you know, you've just seen this in a short period of time, both the duties and now the virus they were having, how we manage how we manage that. And it's a very methodical, uh, very planned information gathering type of approach, staying close to people. 
I didn't do any of that back then. So if you're not, if you're on a wing and a prayer, yeah, well, then pray, pray a lot. That's all I can say. Because, uh, but be in touch with their people, and I think that's the biggest thing I can tell you right now. I guess that was a big learning experience that's helped us, or helped you, sorry, um, throughout the coronavirus situation. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, again, I have to, I didn't, going back to that point of how you come through a failure, is you have to recognize what went wrong. Sure. And I always love the, the an expression, the coach that I have, Dan Sullivan, he says, if you can own the breakdown, then you can own the breakthrough. And what that means is if you can take responsibility for how it got to that point, what the failures were. Now you can now you can make progress going forward. Because but you can't make that progress unless you own what that breakdown is. And so we're looking at it and saying, what is it? Not us, but we've got to own this. This is our responsibility. <clears throat> and our responsibility is pretty clear. We want to make sure our factories stay in business. Otherwise we're out of business too. We want to make sure our customers have supply. So how can we coordinate that? What can we do? Can we look at other alternatives? But that allows us to think a little bit more clearly. Uh, I can't say we don't have emotional reactions. I can't say that I don't think about this and say what would happen, because uh, I do. But I think that's just being human. Oh, yeah. It's hard not to think about the ifs and buts along the way. Uh, what do you think is more rewarding, though, for you? Is it getting GCP, um, starting GCP as a successful company or actually keeping it successful? Oh, I'd say keeping it successful. You know, I'm a starter, so that's in some respects, that's not so difficult. I think about it, but but I really feel a great deal of pride and and appreciate you asking about that. And in the sense of how we kept it going and how we kept it growing, and and how to keep motivating it and keep myself motivated, because there's there's a lot of times when you wouldn't be, and and maybe I have a lot more doubts than people might suspect from the outside. But I need to go through that period. Maybe that's my own way of staying grounded, like I I did back then, 15 years ago. But certainly, the much more much prouder of keeping it going, <clears throat> being not being a statistic of a failure, but being one of a success. That's <clears throat> that's what I'll take with me. You know, that's far more important for me. Yeah, and I guess that's why I want to celebrate our tw- their 20 year anniversary so much too. Now the pride in making it to 20 years yeah. and getting it 25, keeping our timeline going. Yeah, it, you know, we. <clears throat> I've also learned, too, that you don't really know what's going to happen, you know, and I, I would like, I would never have predicted the situation that we've been in a few times. Uh, we've come through it. I'm amazed by the people around me that I'll say, no problem, Gary, you'll just, you and GCP, you'll just go right through this. I don't always feel that. So those are great to see. And so that comes from having, having, you know, survived that 20 years. And you know, maybe I thought at one point that there might be an easy street, but I don't think there ever is. And no. I think I, I was baited. <clears throat> I think we did this one of the last podcasts. My daughter, who's in business now just for a couple of years, and she said, asked me, she said, Dad, was there ever a time you felt comfortable? And I said, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, oh, crap, why'd you tell me that? I'm just starting, <laughs> and you're 20 years into it. But no, I, I, I think that's my way of, that's my way of just staying alert to what's happening. Yeah, because I guess if you too, get too comfortable and maybe too arrogant, like you said, then things can fly by you. You don't even realize what's happening around you. Yeah, I, I'm. I look at other people and say, "Wow, how did they grow their businesses? How did they do what they do? They seem to hit, a, hit ride this big wave and things shoot up in a hurry." And um, I, for me, I've always put it back into baseball terms. I'm never a guy that hit a home run. One, I'm not a big person anyway. But you know, I need a bunt. I need a single. I need to steal a base and run it out. Whatever it is. Maybe a double. That's about as far as I'd ever get. And I realized that I can't get ahead of myself. 
And I don't know how many other people feel that way, but I look at others and I think the few that, and I think it's a small number because I've coached a lot of people over the years. And it's just a small percentage of people that really rise, accelerate really quickly. I've also seen them fall quickly, you know, yeah. Rim, Blackberry in our community rose really quickly and also fell really quickly and had to remake have, had to remake themselves. So I'm I'm kind of happy to uh, to hit the singles and you know steal a few bases and get a couple of bunts down and just keep it going and keep moving ourselves along. You eventually score runs and you make things happen, but you don't take big risks along the way. And so I if that's what how I feel, I need to be happy with what the results are that we have today. You don't want to fall as hard as Blackberry <coughs> did. And that was a huge thing in the news. No, and you know, you could see that too. We, we could see it because we're here local. Um, what happened in the culture of the company? And that made an impression upon me too. There were some, a couple of uh, executives, mid-level executives that were on a plane that, that, that got hauled off for um, pretty raucous behavior on the plane, being drunk and everything like that. And I go, what? why should that be acceptable? You yeah. know, because money didn't matter to them at that point. So it didn't matter what somebody spent and where they went and what they did. And um, I, in my neighborhood, there were a number of people that also worked for them and that talked about the dysfunction that took place. So as much as the rise was happening on the outside, there's a lot of dysfunction on the inside. Yeah. Apple had a very similar problem <laughs> in oh, the early it? days. Yeah, Apple. Oh. Um, I remember reading about Apple when the first incarnation of Steve Jobs being there is that the sales and marketing didn't know what production was doing. So they oh, were never okay. in sync. They didn't communicate inside the organization. Um, and that almost led to, to Apple's failure as wow. well, and certainly the ouster of Steve Jobs. And then when he came back, he ran it completely differently. So there's a lot of, there, there's not all the companies, but there's a lot of history um, that you'd find they go through that, where those that have risen really quickly haven't really paid attention to you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's along the way. And and those are the things that really trip you up, culture being one of them, like in RIM's case. Yeah, and I guess culture yeah, is definitely key because uh, even within GCP, uh, I, I actually was wondering, um, a lot of the people stay around for many years, 5, 10, 15 years, end up retiring there. That's not really common. Uh, what makes GCP so unique that everyone sticks around? Well, uh, you know, again, I think it's also in keeping with everything that you've said is that where do people want to be? I, I personally believe that most people want to grow and they want to see their evidence of their contributions. And I know how I feel that way and I, and I think everybody else does as well. They're not always given that same opportunity. Um, Nathan, I don't know, maybe tongue in cheek, but I take it as, uh, as sort of true for him. He says, Gary, I'm sticking around as long as we're growing. You know, and okay, okay, well, I guess, you know, if he's your VP and general manager, you want to make sure we're still growing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think we want to keep this going. So I, I always feel uh, pressure in some respects, but also the commitment to continue that. So the growth of the company is one thing. If it's all about yourself, I don't think that works very well. But the growth of the individual, how can they grow? I know later on uh, you're going down to a couple of days at Strategic Coach. Yep. That's that's all part of the growth. That's all seeing how we operate as a company, but also getting you to see the world and and see learning more about yourself. So I think that's why people stay around. You know. Yeah, I can see it for sure. There's lots of opportunities, and that's a huge thing because a lot of companies start you off and they don't offer much to go forward. It's just day-to-day job, right? So it's nice to feel appreciated. And well, um, yeah. Well, it'd be great to go back and talk to Melanie because Melanie, who's now our, our director of logistics, uh, when she started, she was part-time um, handling some orders. And uh, so this is back in 2004. 
2005, March of 2005, she came on. And after a little while um, being there, I said to her, I think you'll head up logistics in the company. She looked at me. What do you mean? Her her handle on no G- on her yeah her handle on the on her uh, email at one point was shy girl you know was it yeah shy girl at Hotmail going back that far <laughs> and so not her work one but the one for personally so that she was she was a very shy individual um, and hadn't hadn't worked anywhere such like that and um, I I I talked to her and uh, we worked on that I, I remember one time we were having the same thing with her I thought oh boy, wouldn't you like to just talk to the customer and be there, you know, now? Our biggest customer in California. And I remember being on a phone call with her, and she was so nervous and then mad at me. We hung up the phone. She says, Gary, if you do that to me again, she says, I quit. No, no, Melanie, I can't have you quit right now. What do you mean? Because I thought I'd give her the opportunity to talk, because yeah. I like to talk. And and she kind of intimated to me that I'd talk about things I didn't know all the details about, which was probably true. <laughs> and it is still true today. Uh, and I said, okay, let's come to a deal. Okay, you... Feed me the information that I need, and then and I talk to them. And then when we're done, you take it away and do the follow up because I wasn't good at either one of those. Preparing the information, doing the follow up, <clears throat> again learning about our, our what our what our strengths were. She said, "Deal, we got that," and we got through that one. <clears throat> and then there was another time when my assistant left, and um, Melanie was next in line, and so I said, offered Melanie the spot that she want to be my assistant, and which was perceived in the organization to be a a, a higher position executive assistant and uh, and she said no and sometimes those are as I've, I've used this expression before SCI serious career impediments okay. but no not for Melanie Melanie said this is what she likes to do and this is what she does Good for and, her yeah and she didn't want to do that so I totally respected that and uh, as a result I think Melanie and I have a, have a great relationship and uh, uh, she stayed in the area where she wanted to stay she does an awesome job she does and uh, I mean it's really hard in the freight business to make have, make it a profit center, but Melanie can make freight a profit center, which means, how do you make freight a profit center? Melanie <laughs> figures out how to do it. And the customers are happy and looks after them. So uh, she's just really, so as she's come through that, she's a great example because she's the one that's been there the longest other than myself, but she's always had opportunities to grow. And my hope is, and my goal, not my hope and my goal, is that everyone who's there gets to grow beyond where they thought they could grow in their own minds. And so that means we've got to, coming back to the point we said about paying attention, we've got to pay attention to what's going on. We've got to pay attention. I talked about our customers and our suppliers, but we also have to pay attention to our people. And so those are, the, those are my three audiences, as I call it, that I need to look after. When you first started the business out, did you have a clear idea of how you wanted your team to be? Absolutely not. No? <laughs> no. It, you know, I think it all evolves. You know, the team, you... When you start, when people start businesses, they start them probably because they see an opportunity and they, they want freedom from what they were doing before. I loved going out and talking to people. I loved putting it all together. I loved the travel part of it. And I got to do all of that. And then you begin to realize, oh, we have to process orders and we got to handle phone calls and <coughs> people call and complain and we got to deal with complaints. And I go, I hate all that stuff. The complaint part is hard. <laughs> yeah, well, I was terrible at customer service. That's why Melanie's there first. That's the first thing we got to do is customer service. Uh, but it was really, it's a process of discovery. And I hope that as, as people are listening to this, they can think back through their careers and think back through their time, even those who aren't necessarily entrepreneurs. And what do they really like to do? What don't they like to do? And start to give themselves the freedom to do more and more of the things that they're good at doing, because that's where they bring more value. 
And that's what I was able to begin to do. So when I got started, I didn't have any idea. I mean, I didn't have a real big plan. I would like to say, I just thought, oh, this is kind of a neat idea. Why don't you try and do that? My wife wishes it wasn't like that, but mm-hmm. um, and so that's why this one had to work too. I mean, it, I had to stick with it long enough that this was going to be successful. And in the next 10, 20 years, um, you can see the company growing for sure. Is there any big ideas that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I, I think it, you know, as we were talking before we got this this podcast going here today, is that the thing that's really changing is the use of technology and the use of technology in a way to be able to manage data, artificial intelligence, for example, or we also talked about things like blockchain that are coming. And so the supply chain has got to shorten uh, that we're in. We've got to get product to people faster, easier, cheaper. And so uh, that's what's got to, that's what's going to happen. Somebody's going to disrupt it, such as Uber disrupted the taxi industry by coming, making great visibility about where the taxi was, what the cost was, who the driver was. And the experience they got, the customer experience. So what I see happening is there's still going to be a need that product's going to move around. Countries have unique strengths just like we do as individuals. So certain countries, if we're allowed to have free trade, are going to be able to do the products that they're best at. And therefore, as product moves around, how do we then make it easier? How do we make it so that they, people don't have to carry as much inventory, that they get there faster? And that's going to happen in, a digital, in the digital age. And uh, I don't think that's far away. I think that's in the next five years. <clears throat> I think it's really important for GCP that we look at what's happening uh, and recognize that our industry that's been around a long time is due for a bypass. And so the, the expression is uh, be disrupted or be the disruptor. So if we, want to, if we wait, then we will be disrupted and somebody else will take our place. As we did, we disrupted the industry when we started. So it's time again. And uh, my view is is that let's look at how we can be the disruptor, disrupt ourselves, but also create another opportunity. And for those that won't disrupt themselves, let's let's be that let's be that disruptor for them, and and help them grow their businesses, because we'll develop the platform, we'll develop the technology to be able to move products around easier, cheaper, faster, better. <laughs> if blockchain gets accepted by the U.S. Customs, then people are going to want to have their documents all done. Um, all digitally, electronically, all done, because that's what U.S. Customs will accept. As soon as that happens, those who are ready to go are going to be able to get through their products through Customs. They're going to be able to make it go smoother, faster. Shipping documents will all work better. And that's just going to happen. And so we can wait for it to happen, or we can be part of making it happen. Yeah, I'm so curious and interested to see what's going to happen in the next five years even. And then in 10 years from there, everything is going to be so different. Yeah, the, the next five years, I think, are really the transition time. Yeah. And uh, after that, I think we'll be much more in the digital age after that. There'll be another disruption. You know, we're 2020 now. Uh, there'll be another one as we see how the digital world unfolds probably between 2028 and 2030. Um, just sort of my thoughts. It takes a while for it to get into place. But right now, we've got one that I think we can we can deal with and we can work on. We need to find the right partners. And I, that, that's the other thing. Be forward-looking. Look out. Who do you need to work with? That's what taught me back in 2005. I'm not going to do it myself. Yeah. I'm not going to bring all this world in to be the disruptor. But can we communicate it? Can we be the ones that take it to the industry? And that, that's where our strength has always been. And I guess I should have one last question, really. Um, 
I was just wondering, with everything that's taken place, how do you make your most difficult decisions? <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. I just got asked that question. Really? <laughs> yeah, Nathan and George asked that question to me uh, not so long ago because I said, you know, I don't really want to continue to be president right. for a long period of time. And they go, well, Gary, how do you make decisions? And uh, so I asked them if they ever heard of probability theory. And they kind of had, they both have their MBAs. And they, so I thought they might have run across it, but maybe it was more prevalent when even I was working. And I said, part of it is, is that you, you look at the probability of things happening. And again, it's your probability is still kind of your best guess. You want to use your experience to do that. And then you, you sort of project what the likely outcomes are. So when I'm making decisions, maybe I run through these things relatively quickly. I, I do that kind of analysis and I go and say, oh, you know, we're hiring somebody to come and do some work for our silicone business. And uh, the question is, geez, we're going to pay him. We didn't really want to do it that. We'd prefer to be on commission, but he wants to get paid. So we're willing to do that. And so my question to Nate was, well, how much, how much do you think he can generate for us? And we knew how much we needed to have. So if we think, if we believe that there's a 100% probability of this person generating the, the sales that we need to have, which would give us the margin that would cover it off, why wouldn't you make that investment? Okay. Yeah. It's going to hurts in the short term, but not necessarily in the long term. But if you don't believe that's going to happen, now you have to now you continue to go down and gather more information. So my mine is I gather enough information that I need that allows me to make a judgment or in this case a probability uh, that the outcome will be better than what my than what the cost is or the investment that's required to make it there. It doesn't always work out. But that's, that's how I look at it. And maybe it's, I'm an engineer by training. Maybe it's something that, that helps me to do that. But I look at it and say, oh, if the, out, if the expected outcome is greater than the cost and, and it's an ongoing benefit, then I should do it. That's really interesting. It's a great way of look, like doing it. It's like, it's like people. <laughs> I'm, you know, we say, well, you want to hire these people. It's a cost. No, people are an investment because... And why go back? And you go back, because we started that. How did we fail? We failed because it was me, and we succeeded because we had a team. And that's what, you've heard me say this before. If the company fails, it's because of me. If we succeed, it's because of the team in the room. So Melanie and George and Nathan are still on 15 years later. They bring their specific talents. They're doing fairly similar responsibilities to when they first got there, but that's what they're uniquely capable of doing. And they love doing what they do. They're good at what they do, and they work well together. So when you're, working, when you're working with people, if I, d- I didn't have the money back then, but I knew if I didn't make that investment, then would I have it, the money later? Well, my bet was that they would be able, we'd be able to make the company better because these people were on. And the difference between buying an asset that depreciates like a car, we're just talking about cars, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know they cost money. People actually can appreciate and they get better over time. If yes. they're treated right. So I look at that. That's a really, really easy investment for me to make now because I think they'll get better. Just as like the individual we're bringing on now, the cost is there. No, I don't think it'll be too long before we are very happy with the decision that we've made, even though I don't like the structure of it. But I'm willing to take the risk and he isn't. I'd rather be in that position. And you have a handle on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's a good part of it. Yeah, and if it it's doesn't if it doesn't work out, you stop it, right? Yeah, <clears throat> you just stop it. Say it's not. It's you know, if you buy a stock, for example, you're into the stock. If stock goes down, you sell it. Um, you've lost money, or you buy something else. A car depreciates. Houses appreciate for the most part, but there's a lot of things that we buy that do depreciate. 
I always looked at people as an appreciating asset. You have to make investments and you have to keep it going, but they're appreciating assets. And uh, that's what, it certainly worked for me. And that's what, that's what got GCP out of the hole. That's what got GCP to continue to grow. And I believe that's where we'll continue to see the growth come from. Whenever we stop doing that, I think we'll also see the stop in the growth in the company. And there's a lot of communication within the company, which I, I see it every day. It's definitely helping and helping everyone grow. Yeah, good. Awesome. Yeah. Anything else today, Kim? Well, that's all for today, I guess, really. Um, just for our, our listeners, did you want to just give a brief s- summary of what GCP Industrial Products actually does? Yeah, GCP Industrial Products was founded back in 2000, and we supply a container, uh, you know, tw- 20-foot and 40-foot containers of products, mostly, basically, basically rubber, uh, rubber and silicone, both solid and sponge. Uh, <clears throat> great thing about it, the rubber is all from recycled material, uh, and which is what I pioneered back in the late, um, the late 80s and into the 90s, and so we were able to transfer that there. What we do is we actually supply it in large rolls for industrial applications, so either to industrial converters, which ends up in the automotive, agricultural uh, manufacturing, mining, uh, oil and gas industries ends up in all those industries. And there, anytime you put two pipes together, anytime you want vibration dampening, it's there. The silicone um, ends up in somewhat into aerospace under high temperature applications. And again, we both have solid and sponge. But <clears throat> our business is such that we supply to a few number of customers with large quantities uh, because they have they need consistent quality. And so that's that's what our business is. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Kim.